Hey guys, you've tuned into This is Dela Cruz, and I'm your host, Nick Dela Cruz. I've got a special treat for you all, Wayne Pauley. If you have ever been to a Lee Bryce concert, you've experienced his magic firsthand. Wayne is more than just a skilled audio engineer, he's the sonic architect behind the unforgettable live performances of one of country music's brightest stars. In today's episode, we'll unravel the mysteries of live sound engineering, learn about the challenges on the road, and discover the stories behind the scenes. So buckle up, hit play, and join me as we venture into the fascinating world of touring audio engineering. Thank you for tuning into This is Dela Cruz, where stories unfold and the sound comes alive. So let's get started. Well, welcome, guys. I want to introduce you to Wayne Pauley. Wayne. Like Jane, but no relation. <laughs> first off, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. We are in the, uh, the Opry. We're in the, specifically, we're in the Delta Ballroom yes. of the Opryland Hotel. Yes. And Convention Center. Uh, so, Wayne runs sound for Lee Bryce, um, but I don't think you started off just jumping here and running sound. No. Where did you start off of? How did you get into sound? Could you, uh, could you uh, tell us a little bit about that story? Uh, I actually started off as a musician, as uh, several. Okay. Uh, audio engineers and, and other people in the entertainment industry. Start off as a musician as a very young person. Um, fourth grade, as a matter of fact. And what was your instrument? Um, trombone. Okay. <clears throat> Started off playing the trombone. That uh, morphed into drums, of course. And then uh, in about seventh grade, I uh, learned how to play bass guitar. And that became sort of a, uh, a direction for a long time. Hmm. Um, got to high school. Uh, some guys that I went to high school with, we all kind of formed this kind of a rock and roll cover band. And of course, we were making penny. We couldn't afford a sound guy, so we just all kind of pitched in and did it ourselves. You know, We went and rented a PA from our local guitar shop and we take it out and set it up and messed a few things up and figured out how to do it right eventually. And <laughs> that's kind of how it started. Lee Bryce. I'm assuming you didn't go from running sound in a garage <laughs> to jumping with, with Lee Bryce, uh, no. amazing artist. How did you uh, how'd you get connected with him? Um, I'll back up just a little bit. Uh, as a musician, uh, at one point when I got out of high school, the band that I was playing in, we wanted to try and, and get a record deal. So we moved to Los Angeles in the 80s, which was a thing. A thing to do? It was a thing. Playing music in LA, you can't really make money doing it. So I kind of figured out I had to do some side hustle. I, had to, I got a real job. Yeah. And then three nights a week, I got a job at a local club as a house sound guy, just to you know, make some, make some extra money. Stayed the course for about, uh, we'll say five years, something like that, and band broke up, and I got tired of LA, and finally moved back to the East Coast. And long story short, I ended up settling in Nashville accidentally. In 95, I came here to visit some of my friends that I went to high school with. That led to kind of wanting to do it as a career. I met some great people early on. It just really helped me out. And long story longer, I uh, ended up being on the road with some, some uh, pretty, pretty great acts in the late 90s and the early 2000s. The way that I got to Lee in the early 2000s, I worked uh, on a tour that was part of a television show called Nashville Star. Hmm. And it was sort of the country version of American Idol. Mm -hmm. And I think it lasted seven seasons. Uh, but one of the contestants on there was a dear friend, a singer-songwriter named Lance Miller. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the few that I kept in touch with. So over the years, Lance and I would reconnect every you know, little while and just check on each other and whatnot. Uh, I tried to retire three times. <laughs> three times I tried to get off the road. Um, by 2010, and, and in 2010, I was like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to stay home. I'm not doing any of this crap anymore. So uh, I was literally at home uh, doing odd jobs and the little pickup gig around town, and 
Lance called me out of the blue one day. He says, hey man, I got this buddy named Enzo and Enzo's managing this new guy that uh, I think they might need somebody who does what you do. So I said, well, I'll talk to him. Sure, why not? So I went in and I met with management and decided that it would be best if I just go out for a weekend, you know, to see if they like me and if I like them, you know, if it was worth it or whatever. I went out for a week, second show. I'm like, well, I guess I got a new job. <laughs> so August, August of this year, I'll start my 13th year here. Wow. I see a Paragon back here. Beautiful console. <laughs> There's a lot of, what, what are all these little uh, knobsticks? I don't know what do. to do with all that. It's beautiful to see in the day of digital technology that you're using not digital technology with that. What was your, um, I'm assuming you have used obviously digital boards. Yes. Um, you have. For quite some time. Why the Paragon? The honest answer is. everything is, seems to be going lightweight, uh, well, high speed, low drag, and uh, <laughs> minimizing all of it. They, so. they, they use the term labor of love, but there's a lot of labor in this labor of love. <laughs> um, honestly, it, to me, it just sounds better. Hmm. Um, once you've taken sound, you know, a sine wave, and you put it through a converter yeah. from analog to digital, that conversion does something to it. You know, you can say whatever you want about sample rates and but it'll never be exactly the same. It'll always be slightly different. Mm. And every time you put it through another converter, it changes it again. Mm. So this, no ones and zeros. <laughs> there is not. None. What was your favorite and least favorite thing about this board besides the weight of it? Um, this is actually the third one of these that I've okay. traveled with. The first one I actually bought myself, which is an original, uh, uh, blackface, the original P um, 40, but it was a cu uh, factory custom built to 48 inputs. Okay. It was built specifically for the uh, resorts, hotel, and casino in Atlantic City. And it's, a, it's, it's bigger than this. It's 104 inches across. Um, Have you always been on this uh, for the, this, since you've been with Lee? Before I started carrying the original, original Paragon, I didn't carry a console. It was console du jour. Okay. And PA du jour. Okay. Um, back then, we didn't have a truck. We didn't have truck space, all that kind of thing. So uh, once we got to a truck, I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time to find that console at the casino in Atlantic City. It was, it was in the closet upstairs. It had been there since 2000. They bought it in 93, and they, they put it upstairs in the closet in 2000, and I bought it in 2013. So this, this is yours? No, 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 not this one. Oh, okay. The original. Okay, okay. okay. The original. Uh, it's the one that looks like John McBride's. It's okay. the black face yeah. with the three, and the, you know. Yep. It looks just like that, only slightly bigger. Yeah. Uh, this is the Series 2. Okay. The P2. Um, least favorite thing in the beginning was it just wasn't reliable. Hmm. And it's the nature of the thing. Anybody hmm. who's ever mixed on one can tell you there's a whole section of panels underneath here, they call them the belly pans. If you're traveling with an original P40, you'll never put the belly pans on because every day you're going to be underneath that pushing ribbon cables in somewhere. Really? Or you give it the old McBride, you know, <laughs> got the little rubber hammer on the corner and just give it a little love tap and the, the ground buzz will go away. But the juice is worth the squeeze. Uh, right? Hands down. Hands <laughs> Can down. you walk us through a little bit of, of your setup? You have some uh, beautiful outboard uh, gear here, and you sure. have some unique things I want to get to here in a second. But if you don't <laughs> mind walking us through what in, uh, what's in your rack. I don't. Um, obviously, 
analog copper comes to here. Yep. Um, outboard comes out over to a pair of 2290s, okay. the digital delays, even tied H3000, and in the bottom is a TC Electronics System 6000, which is a quad engine verb. So it's four stereo in, four stereo, in, four stereo out. Okay. And then this is the remote for it. Okay. So each one of these, you can just select it, and it gives you the parameters of each one. If it were lit up, you could see the meters coming and going. From there, it goes back to the desk. On the drive side, the outputs go to uh, the TC, the old school TC 112080Qs, which is an, actually a single rack space. It's one in and one out, uh, mono, and it's analog filters okay. with MIDI con control. Okay. So it's completely analog in and out, but it has the magic controller here. Yeah, you show me that. That's cool. What, what, what is it? Explain. So it. it's literally just a remote control. Uh huh. So whenever you you uh, 30, I picked that up earlier. That thing's a, yeah. Ooh, it's heavy. It's got a uh, you can you can control up to thirty two units at the same time. Okay. Uh, it was best suited in the eighties for monitor mixes because hmm. you could literally do thirty two of them. Yeah. And it has this cool little button called the pile button where you can link one or two or all of them together at the same time. So um, if you want to EQ one, you can EQ four or, you know, I'd use it just for left and right, obviously. Mm -hmm. But um, there's the, the typical left, right, sub, fill, output out yep. of the desk into those four EQs that are underneath. And then that goes into a Galileo, which I use basically on days that the PA is really bad. Because we don't carry PA at this point. Sometimes we do, but okay. it's pretty rare. Okay. Um, it's just, man, the cost of fuel these days is just it's, yeah. it's outrageous. Yes. And finding the gear and the crew, uh, you know, we would love to, but yeah. it's just a, it's a, it's something that we're, we're just not at that place. Yeah. I see um, some Rupert Neve down there too. Yes, there's uh, two shelfer channels, uh, one for Lee's acoustic and one for his vocal. Okay. Um, and I really only need those. Honestly, I really only need them for the silk button hmm. and for the compressor. Okay. Not that the compressor on this is bad, because every one of these has a gate and a comp, yeah. every single input. And the compressor that's on this is equal to a DBX160. Okay. Wow. It's that good. Wow. Uh, and the gates are probably too good. Um, there's, there's a high and a low key, so you can dial in where the key opens uh, the gate, and there's, it's, it's fantastic. The gates feel like uh, the old Drummer 201s. Wow. Uh, the two channel. Okay. Yeah. And then the comps like a DBX160, which is also fantastic. But those are the only two pieces of outboard that I use. Everything else is a gate or a comp or nothing on the channel strip, which is another thing I want to bring up. Uh, on this desk, I have 55 inputs. I have nine channels of EQ engaged. Everything else is flat. Really? Flat. You work a we worked a very long, uh, long time making sure that our source tones had the right microphones, had the right thing. I was going to ask you about that because your sound check went really fast. Yeah. Um, and, I was, and I took a peek over there. I noticed a lot of them were actually. Uh, yeah. uh, two kicks, four toms, two perk toms. Sometimes leaves vocal depending on the room. Hmm. Sometimes leaves acoustic depending on the room. Okay. That's about it. Maybe okay. a little something. Uh, I might throw a little top end on the congas or something like that. Maybe, but rarely. Okay. Rarely. Uh, tell me about your your um, your sound check process and your uh, tuning the room process. 
Uh, walk me through that. I know a lot of people like to use Smart. I noticed that uh, you use something a little bit different, a little bit of old school, a <laughs> little bit of uh, binaural over there, and just yeah, walking around yeah, and you utilize yeah. the... Yeah. I've said this for a long time. Smart is a fantastic tool, and it's absolutely necessary. Um, for me, I don't use it myself because I'm not a systems engineer. Don't claim to be. Uh, there's lots of people out there that are much better and much smarter at that kind of thing than I am. I know when it's not right, but there's so many different PAs and so many different manufacturers that use their own voodoo magic to make whatever it is that they're doing, make it do whatever that thing is. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to dive into that. That's a whole other job. I got enough jobs as it is. Okay. <laughs> okay. First thing I'll do is just turn the whole thing on, all of it and just kind of roll the music in slowly and just listen to it. Hmm, this sounds good, this sounds bad, this sounds weird. You know, you'd be surprised how many times on a PA du jour gig, especially small town USA, mm -hmm. where you don't have, you know, one of the top five or top 10 uh, sound reinforcement companies in the country. And you know how many times I've not been able to hear left and right sound the same. It happens more than you would think, hmm. more than it should, more than it should. So just listen to it, uh, listen to the whole thing together all at once first. Then I'll, you know, pull it back down and just listen to each individual output by itself. Make sure those are doing the things. If there's side hangs or delays or any of that kind of thing, I want to hear those by themselves. Hmm. Just give me one. What's the stick doing? What's that? Well, you can see here. There's four mains and four delays, and I'm like, I want to hear each one of them, hmm. what they're doing and make sure that they're all doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And so when you compile all that together, it does exactly what it's supposed to. Do you have a specific song you tune the room uh, to? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah? I get a lot of shit for it. <laughs> Why is that? I don't care. Because <laughs> everyone's been around me has heard it for 25 years. <laughs> and what's the song? Fields of Gold. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I've, I've just, I've used it so long. Mm -hmm. I know it so well. Yeah. Like I've literally heard the song somewhere around 100,000 times. It, it's... I could, I can spot, I can spot distor distortion in a driver because I know it so well. And it's not that I'm better than anybody else. It's just repetition. Yeah. You, know? you do enough, you do the same thing enough, long enough, eventually you're going to start figuring out what's yeah. going on. Yeah. So. I uh, also notice you are not using waves. How <laughs> dare you in this time and age not use waves with it? Um, personal preference for it? You just have some, uh, yeah. maybe a little bit of war wounds wave, with Waves it? crash. They crash. Waves yeah. crash. Go to the ocean. You'll see it. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be an awesome t-shirt. <laughs> nah, man, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little too old school not to make the jump to do that kind of stuff because yeah. I have used it. I know what it does. I get it. To me, I always get back to what's the weakest link in the chain. And that's the thing you should concentrate on. That's why we've worked for so long on source time. You know, because if you don't throw a shit ton of EQ on the console, yeah. how much phase correlation do you not have? Yeah. You know, it's all right there coming right down the middle. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know what the latency is on this task? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, now, with the with the Rupert Neve stuff, um, so why did you select those specifically? Was it something else? Uh, it was trial and error, to be honest with you. Okay, what else did you try? Uh, I tried a few uh, single rack pieces that were API. Okay. Obviously, because the ATI is yeah. the uh, 
little brother of the API, yep. and they sound identical. Well, they're basically the same parts. I'd seen a couple of guys using these things and uh, well. I'm like, man, I should give that a listen. Hmm. And it started with the Portico 2, the master bus processor, yeah. which I keep inserted on the left-right bus, which obviously doesn't go to the subs or the front fills or anything. It's just literally just the left-right hang. It's the only thing it's working on by design. That's the way I want it. Um, and I, I don't use it all the time. I do check it, as you saw. Yeah, I heard it earlier. It was pretty significant difference. Yeah, it's a significant difference. Yeah. Our show is designed to be a couple of different things, but first and foremost, very dynamic. Mm -hmm. The show will go from 90, 92 to 107. It doesn't stay there, <laughs> but it'll go there. <laughs> when I first started using the, the Portico 2, I basically used it with the threshold on the, comp on the compression, the input threshold, all the way off. So there was no compression at all. Okay. Just I wanted to hear it work. Yeah. yeah. And it sounded great. You know, it does this thing and this little magic thing that Rupert Neve created. Oh, God rest his soul. <laughs> um, you know, you push the silk button and you yep. dial it all the way up and you listen to it and you dial it back and yep. you find your sweet spot and that kind of thing. Um, but the more I used it, the more I realized that there was a lot more to it than just what I was using it for, which was great. Yeah. So then I started really messing with it. And then I went too far. I'm like, okay, start back from scratch. <laughs> Let's go back to zero and start over. And I did. The big thing that helped me dial that in was the pandemic. Hmm. So we're doing live streams and broadcasts and all of these things where you're doing a show where it's just the band and there's no audience and everyone's you know quarantined for three weeks yeah. and you know i take this whole rig into a, a, a space and build my own little mini control room mm. but as you know anyone who's done broadcast it has to be a certain it's yeah. got to be the margins are very small absolutely to be able to make it sound the way it's supposed to sound have everything pop and still do what it does and still get some sort of dynamics out of it and that's when that thing really shined, really shined. Because it took a standard issue live mix and it made it broadcast ready without crushing it. Mm. And it's just, it's a beautiful piece, man. That's awesome. So now in the show, there's one section about three-fourths of the way through where it's really big and loud, and you know, all the stuff. And then it comes back into uh, the last quarter of the show or so is... Um, a lot of uh, mid to up tempo songs that are all like the like the, the big big hits, and they're all meant to sound a certain way, very yeah. Tom Petty-ish, yeah. if you will, yeah. that kind of way. You know, the the digging a ditch drum thing. It's a boom, you know. So when it comes to that section of the show, I'll put that in and let the let the compressor kind of knock the top off of it, and then you know the blue adds a little love to it and put a little sprinkle on the top and all of a sudden it's, you know, goes from sounding like a vinyl record to sounding like a CD. Hmm. That's some of the secret sauce for that. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, it seems, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, um, there's been a, a shift in the industry where, especially with COVID, that a lot of um, the old timers hung mm -hmm. up their hats um, yeah. and left some room for some, some uh, young guns coming up. Um, sure. For the people that may be watching this that aspire to be where you're at one day or maybe even uh, you when you were younger, what advice would you give to the people that want to be sitting here 
uh, want to be touring or want to be working with a Paragon or want to be uh, with a act like that, what advice would you give to them? I would say the biggest thing is listen and pay attention to what you're listening to. Put yourself in different environments. Hmm. Go listen to things that are out of your norm. Try some new things. Go to the symphony. Go hear a jazz band. Go hear a metal band. You know, go hear an old school country band. You know, listen to a lot of different things. Hmm. Expand your horizon some. You know, uh, buy yourself a good set of headphones. Stay away from these ear pods <laughs> or whatever the hell they're called. Do you have a favorite pair of headphones? Uh, I have several, but uh, as far as like the hundred dollar off the shelf, probably the Sennheiser HD two eighties. Okay. So for, for someone who's been in the industry for 30 years, uh, you have seen a lot of different things. I'm sure you've seen a lot of different fads come and go. Oh, yeah. um, from somebody who has uh, that kind of experience, what do you see as the, uh, as the future for audio? Do you think uh, AI is going to take over everything? Do you think our job is going to be, no. going to be gone? Uh, do you think it's going to go all Atmos and uh, throw all the transducers around? Um, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you personally see as the future? Atmos is a great thing. Don't get me wrong, I'm fully behind it. Uh, at most, it's going to be hard to sell to the regular consumer. Mm -hmm. uh, if you recall back when Dolby became 5.1, that was a thing. But then along came 7.1, and then 9.1, 9.2, 11.3, whatever. There's always the next latest greatest thing. But Atmos is, a, it, it's a great thing, but to me personally, I don't see the, I don't see it falling in the footsteps of Beats headphones. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's where it's headed. It, it, it's not going to sell billions and billions. No. Because no. the average person isn't going to, they're, they're not going to go through the, through the, jump through the hoops and pay that kind of money for a system. Yeah. And it's great. Like I said, don't get me wrong. It's sure. fantastic. Sure. Uh, it's just, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't see it taking over. Uh, I think 10 years from now, you'll be like, what was that again? There was that thing. The <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hope not for their sake, but. Sure. I don't, I don't know. Um, I do think there will be a resurgence of actual quality. And I see it in some of my colleagues that are in the manufacturing side and in the system engineering side um, of how some of the higher echelon venues are really looking into what it takes to make the leap between good and great. Um, a good friend of mine was just at Red Rocks this past week uh, demoing an entire brand new Meyer Panther rig and it was massive. And the guys are just, they're blown away. It's just, it's, you got to keep up the technology. But by the same token, the technology allows you to get that last 1% mm. of quality that's so hard to get. Mm. It's the reason I carry this. Mm. You know, I could do this on a, well, something else. <laughs> I could do this on a digital desk. I could. In fact, I carry one as a spare. But it's just not the same. Mm. You know, it'll be good, but it'll never be great. Mm. Is there anything you want to tell the, the uh, younger generation and the new generation? The biggest thing, like I said before, is literally to just listen. 
Smart is a fantastic tool. And it, it helps all of us get to levels that were not possible 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago. The levels have just gotten really, really good. Um, and that constant push to get that last 1% of greatness is, is a thing. Um, for a new person, not even necessarily a young person, but for a new person coming into this industry, like I said, just, man, just listen. Don't let the machine do what it does, but don't let it tell you what to do. Hmm. Because as you can see right here, I don't leave a room flat. I'm going to EQ it until it sounds good. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people come up and go, man, what are you doing? I'm like, don't look at that. Listen, what's it sound like? What's it sound like? That's all you got to do. Just listen. I have to remember that um, I speak to myself in this because uh, I, I do use a lot of digital consoles and I have to remember uh, to mix with my ears. Yeah. Uh, I get so used to what it looks like, being able to pitch and zoom and do everything, especially with the uh, protégés that I try to teach is mix with your ears. Yeah. Um, so look up. Look up. <laughs> There's a band look up at there. The band. What are they doing? <laughs> Check them out. Yeah. And uh, I try to tell them also to walk the room. Walk around oh, God, bit. yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you might sit in a hot spot or yeah. a low spot. You know, it could be kind of what you think of as normal right yeah. here. And you walk 10 feet that way and it's peeling the paint off the walls. <laughs> That's true. Like, whoa, what's going on here? And vice versa. You know, I've so many times sat in a bass trap. Just, man, fucking 60 hertz sounds great right here. And you walk out there and it sounds like paper thin. Yeah. Like, oh, we need to fix that. Yeah. So. Well, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to do this interview. I know it's you're my busy. Pleasure. Um, Glad to so, do it. Really, thank you so much. Uh, absolutely. absolutely.